0: What a great football game the other night if you're a USC fan. I, Ed Manrique turned into a USC fan after that game. No, he really didn't. But it made it fun to watch the game with him being a big Oklahoma fan. <laughs> let's turn to John chapter 13. And before we study the Word, let's look to the Lord in prayer. God, open our eyes, please, to what you would have for us to receive from you tonight from your word. We really do need your help, and we want you to make your word just as personal as you need to make it in order to get our attention, to change our lives, and to help us just to become who you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, John 13, the first 17 verses was the story of the Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and teaching them what it is to be a servant and exhorting them that if they'll learn to live that way by serving others humbly in that way, that it's what will end up making you happy. It'll cause your life to be blessed if you learn these lessons. But on Sunday morning, we went through this passage extensively, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time in it tonight, but if you didn't... Uh, if you weren't here Sunday, I'd encourage you to get the, the CD or a tape or something of that because there are a lot of important lessons that we learn as we see Jesus not just telling his disciples to be loving and caring and humble, but to actually do it. It's really easy to tell people what to do. A lot harder to show people what to do. And Jesus took that approach even before he does all this teaching on love being this new commandment, the greatest commandment. He starts off by, um, you know, just uh, showing them in a very, in a very tangible, a very clear way that it was his intention for us to wait on each other, to serve each other, to to extend ourselves to each other. And again, as we saw Sunday, he he washed Judas's feet. He wasn't real uh, discriminating and looking for someone who was worth having their feet washed. Because, see, when Jesus extends his love, he just extends it. We can't, you know, we might think, well, if we were there, I could see him washing our feet because we're pretty good. We follow him best we can. We really love him. Judas was about ready to sell him out and betray him. Why would he waste his time and water on someone like Judas? But from a different perspective, it makes just as much sense as him wasting his time and water on us because if it wasn't for what he did for us, if it wasn't for the cleansing of the water of the word that he does for us, we're all the same. We're all, you know, maybe some of us a little worse than others, but ultimately all of us fall short of the glory of God. And so, again, Jesus would also exhort us in the same way that that's how we ought to serve, not just finding people who deserve it but actually looking for people who maybe don't deserve it and taking the opportunity to do something for them that might change their life, that might change their eternity. And so if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. And now we'll move on to verse 18. And by the way, all of this is happening in the upper room. This is throughout the Last Supper and things like that. You'll see them leaving after chapter 14 and chapters 15 and 16 will happen as they're heading over to the to the Mount of Olives and uh, or to the um, actually as they're going to head down and he, to the Garden of Gethsemane as he's going to be taken. but so chapters 13 and 14 here are happening in the upper room as they're celebrating the Passover and he's teaching them chapters 15 and 16 as they're heading out and, and going out to the Garden of Gethsemane there on the Mount of Olives, and, and chapter 17, his high priestly prayer happens there on the, on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. So he's still teaching them at this point in the upper room, and he says, I do not speak concerning all of you. He had just said, You know, that you don't need to be, all of you don't need to be washed because you've been cleansed. I'm doing that for you. And you are blessed if you do what I'm telling you to do. But he says, I'm not speaking concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Um, So he's saying, there are some of you that are really going to get this. You're going to understand what it is to serve each other. You're going to understand what it is to be cleansed by me, to have your life changed by my grace. But he said there are some here who aren't going to get it, and he was talking specifically about Judas. And again, and as we'll see as we get go on through the chapter, Judas is just an interesting character, um, horrible guy. I mean, he sold out Jesus for thirty pieces of silver. But this verse, verse 18, is interesting because of the fact that he says, I don't speak concerning all of you. There are exceptions. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. This betrayal that he's talking about, the Scripture that he quotes is from Psalm 41, where David talks about his friend Ahithophel. Ahithophel changed sides, went with uh, ultimately with his son who was who was rebelling against David, Absalom. And, and Ahithophel was one of the dearest friends of David. Now, Ahithophel probably turned on him because his granddaughter was Bathsheba, who David got involved with. And you can imagine how frustrated and upset you'd be if uh, one of your friends took up with your granddaughter. But at that point, David felt such betrayal because... He was the king. He thought he could do whatever he wanted to do. And so Jesus is quoting that verse from Psalm 41, David talking about Ahithophel and connecting it to Judas. Now, it may be that as David was writing that, it really was a prophecy of Judas, and he didn't know it. It may be that it was a prophecy with a double fulfillment. It was about Ahithophel in the short term, and it was also in a secondary sense about Judas, or it might be that Jesus was just, there are other scriptures that indicate that Jesus would be betrayed, and so maybe he's just quoting Psalm 41 in, in sort of an analogous way of, you know, the way he felt with Judas there is the way that David felt when Ahithophel sold him out. You can tell though that, and we'll see later too, Jesus really did love Judas. He, from the beginning, said he loved his own that were in the world, loved them until the end. And Jesus was extending himself to Judas, really giving him opportunities. Back in the beginning, when it says that uh, in verse 2, supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. So that had happened. He was being tempted. When the devil puts something into the heart of someone, the word there is the same word that's used for, a, for an arrow to be shot into someone. And we know that Satan attacks us with fiery darts. But he knows, Really, it's not that he goes inside, it's that he knows where we are vulnerable and he takes a shot at us in the area where we're vulnerable. Judas was vulnerable definitely in the area of finances. He was ripping off... Um, the disciples as he was their accountant and embezzling funds and all and so Satan knows okay here's how I'm going to attack but Jesus still extended himself to him and, and we'll see he even does, he even does further he, he didn't give up on him at that point he was still giving him a chance now there are commentators who when they look at this verse verse 18 I know whom I have chosen they right away jump on that and say, see, Jesus had chosen the 11, but he hadn't chosen Judas. Therefore, Judas wasn't saved. And so people who are of a Calvinistic bent like to take this passage and say, see, there are 11 of them that really were chosen and there was one who wasn't. And Judas wasn't chosen because, you know, here obviously he was going to betray Jesus. Now, it could mean that in this passage. The problem is earlier in the Gospel of John, and whenever you're dealing with a problem passage, you want to see what else is in that particular book or from that particular author to get an idea. And back in John chapter 6, Jesus had made it clear that he chose the 12. So in that context, in John 6, Jesus is saying that he had chosen Judas. Now you can say, chosen him for what? Does that mean chosen for eternity or just chosen to be numbered with the 12? I don't know. But the thing is, as you read of people who are putting a big stress on, you know, all those quotes of things like, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, they're all coming from the gospel of John for the most part. And so I think we have to consider that and not get too cocky in thinking that we have this whole predestination thing all figured out. And so that's all I'm going to say on that, but it's interesting here that Jesus said, I know whom I have chosen. Now, if he's using chosen in the same sense that he was um, seven chapters earlier, then what he's saying is, look, I know. I know him, regardless of whether he's one of the included chosen or not. Basically, Jesus is going, I know what he's doing. I know what he's up to. He's not fooling me. And that's the same for all of us. God knows us. Jesus knows who we are. It's ridiculous to try to sneak around. And Pretty soon he's going to let Judas know completely that he understands what he's doing and he knows what's going on. But at this point, he's just saying, I just want you guys to know there's one of you that's not with me. Now, I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. So, again, Jesus is saying, it's not that they didn't believe, but he wanted them to see more and more. Just another indication. It's kind of like, you know, when you... When you've seen a movie already that's a good movie and then you see it again with someone else, you're really tempted to blow the good parts. You're really tempted to at least go, oh, this is good. Watch. Pay attention here. Did you notice that the guy didn't actually do... You know, you're trying to tip them off. And it's almost what Jesus was doing at this point. He's going, you know, there's a lot that I can't tell you, but listen, I'll give you a hint. There are some somebody that's going to betray me. And when, you, when it happens, you'll see. You'll get it. You'll appreciate it. And most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He's saying, you can't take me and not take God. You can't accept God the Father and not accept me. We're all in this together. The implication very clearly is also if you reject me, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting my father as well. And so he, he's basically saying, look, you need to be careful how you deal with me because I'm tied in intricately. I'm, I'm God. And again, he said, I'm doing this so that you'll know that I am. Another little clue that he drops in there. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me made it really clear. Why was he troubled in spirit? He knew. He knew it was going to happen. He knew it needed to happen. He knew he was going to go to the cross. He had been telling them, them this all along. But here he is, troubled in spirit, as he talks about Judas, as he first hints around about Judas. And then he comes right out and says, it's one of you guys is going to betray me. He was troubled in spirit. I don't think he was troubled in spirit because... He knew his time had come i don 't think that was really what was troubling him at this point. I believe, and we'll see in just a minute he offers uh, food feeds Judas actually. He had served him communion he had, he had he had washed his feet for him, and so here Jesus is doing everything that he can to love Judas, and sometimes we will love people and they'll turn out to be Judas. Sometimes we'll extend our love to someone and and it just doesn't work. Sometimes that happens. But we can't let that, as much as it troubles our spirit, as much as it hurts us and bothers us, we can't let results determine our obedience to God. We just have to do what God tells us to do and leave the results up to him. And so Jesus, we see here, not only his faithfulness to Continue to try to minister to Judas. Why would he even say, one of you is going to do it? It's another opportunity for Judas to repent. Jesus loved him. He didn't want him to to perish, He didn't want him to die, He didn't want him to be the vehicle. God could have used someone else. They could have come and found Jesus easily without Judas. Enough people there knew who Jesus was that Judas's role of coming and going, yeah, that's the guy, I'll kiss him and you'll know who he is, it fulfilled scripture, but it wasn't something that was necessary in order for Jesus to be betrayed. And Jesus, as he knew what was going to happen, and he looked at Judas, maybe even looked at him in the eye at this point, and he was just troubled because he didn't want to see Judas fail and fall. I think sometimes... We have such a simplistic view of reality that we believe that everything is like an old melodrama where there are people with white hats and there are people with black hats. There's the good guys and there's the bad guys. But the truth is Jesus looked at even Judas and saw good in him, saw something that was worth loving, saw something that was worth offering redemption to. And the more we become like him, the more we'll be troubled when people reject him the more it'll really hurt us and, and we'll just get a sick feeling in our stomach when we see someone just not turning to Jesus or not walking with him. Not when we see someone fail and, and, and really something bad happened to them, some total non-Christian heathen and we think like for instance when the, the guy who, Larry Flint, who was the publisher of one of these sleazy magazines gets shot and he ends up in a wheelchair and there's a part of you that thinks, all right. I mean, maybe not you, but me. You just go, man, this guy's destroying so many people. He's getting what he deserves. And yet, I believe that when Larry Flint was put into a wheelchair, our Lord was troubled by that. He didn't want it to go that way. He just wants them to get saved. That's his heart towards everyone, that they'd walk with him in harmony with him, that they would stick close to him. And and so again, as as he thought about Judas and he talked about him, it troubled him in spirit. The disciples looked at one another, perplexed about who he spoke about. They're like, what? One of us? Simon Peter. Well, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This was John who wrote the book. He didn't want to use his own name in that way and just humbly referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't think he meant it as a, Jesus loved me more than you. Like the old Smothers Brothers, mom loved you best kind of a thing. It was simply a, John was finding his identity in the fact that he was loved by Jesus. But the same thing could be said for each of us. Jesus died for you because he loves you, because he cares about you, and you're also the disciple that Jesus loves. But but John identified himself in this way, and I think it's cute. I, I think it's really a, a a nice thing that that's where he found his identity. When they ate, they didn't sit up at a table in straight back chairs. They laid down next to a real low table, would lean on their left elbow and eat with their right hand. And so they were lined up like dominoes, and John was apparently right in front of Jesus and just kind of getting as close to him as he can, leaning on him. And so Peter sees that John's really close to Jesus and he starts mouthing out the words in the sign language, basically going, ask him who it is. Who's the? the disciples were thinking, maybe it's me. Is it me? And they were going through this thing. But Peter's like, John, ask him, ask him. And I remember one time when, uh, I guess I can tell the story because the guy's gone to be with the Lord now. But one of O.J. Simpsons, O.J. Simpson hasn't gone to be with the Lord. But one of his attorneys, who was also his best friend, um, was involved in the trial, standing next to him, sitting next to him the whole time, was there with his hand on him when the verdict was read. Well, he came to Calvary Costa Mesa right after the trial. And he stood in line, and, and I saw him there, and I'm like, hey, there he is. And, and he was, then he got up to Pastor Chuck, and he was talking to Pastor Chuck, and I, like, so much wanted Chuck to ask the guy, "Looked at OJ do it? You know, is this a, and so I'm, like, behind, behind, uh, this attorney, I don't even want to get sued by his relatives by saying it, but, um, and I'm like, ask him, ask him, that's kind of what Peter, Chuck didn't, so we'll never know, but um, (laughs) if you haven't figured it out by now, but, uh, so that's kind of what Peter's doing, he's like, what's the deal, find out what it is, so he motioned to him to ask him who it was of whom he spoke, then leaning back on Jesus' breast, so John was right there kind of leaning on Jesus, but he just kind of, leaned back a little bit, and he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. It was a pretty common thing that they would do in those days. They had a bowl with some spices and things like that in it, and, and so they would take a piece of bread and dip it in the spices and eat it, and, and it wasn't that unusual for them to serve each other in that way by dipping it in and offering someone else a bite. And so Jesus doing this for Judas wasn't real... Um, really unusual but it was he was signaling John and letting him know oh the next guy I give a bite to eat to and so here is Jesus again though serving Judas interesting and so he dipped it in and he gave it to Judas Judas must have got a really guilty conscience at that point because he sees he hears Jesus saying one of you is going to is going to betray me and he already knew he had already decided this is what he was going to do and the disciples are, who is it, who is it, who is it? And he sees like Peter whispering and John whispering and then all of a sudden Jesus is looking him in the eye and handing him a piece of bread to eat and it must have just, oh, I can't imagine. After being with Jesus over three years and, and just being called out like that, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Doesn't mean necessarily that he was possessed by Satan, but Satan just closed the deal at this point. He took such control of the situation. But also, remember, this is again, Judas, early on, he was being tempted. Jesus is serving communion. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Jesus is talking to them, warning them about betraying him. Ultimately now, just giving Judas that last chance, that piece of bread that's dipped and and offering it to him looking him in the eye right while they're talking about this but at that point Judas just decided I'm going to do it anyway he he turned down every opportunity to repent and now it's all over for him so Satan entered him and Jesus said what you do do quickly nobody still got it it wasn't really obvious and the fact that John said no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him He had kind of missed it himself probably even though he heard Jesus say this but still didn't figure it out. They all thought as we see here, well, you know, he's the accountant. Maybe he's got to go buy some stuff for the rest of the Passover feast or he's going to give some things to the poor. And so um, they didn't think much of it. Basically, Jesus just looked at Judas, gave him a piece of bread, dipped in the sop and, and then said, just go do what you're going to do. The Lord gives us The freedom to make choices. It's a powerful freedom, really. The right to even reject him, if that's what we want to do. The right to deliberately go and sin when he's been warning us and telling us that we shouldn't do it. But be careful. When Jesus looks you in the eye and says, just go do what you're going to do, because he will. See, all along, you're on the way, you're thinking about it, things aren't going right you're trying to do stuff and and that are wrong and God keeps putting roadblocks in your way you know you're you're trying to look at something bad on the internet and and you're just getting a spinning clock and you can't seem to the, the internet's not working and and the site's not there and you lo- and and God's like going wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute and He's speaking to your heart, and he's trying to prevent you from messing yourself up. But if you just insist, he'll come to the point where he finally says, just do what you're going to do. Okay, If if you're going to do it anyway, do it. It's not that he approves of it at all. It's just that he says, you know, I've tried, but I can't continue to violate your will. A lot of times we wish that God would violate our will, and he does sometimes. I've had him. When it seems like you're trying to do something wrong and it just doesn't work. You're going to go call somebody up and chew them out and, and you, know, you, you dial and they're not there. And you're like, I want to do this in person. I just don't want to leave a message. And, and then it's God giving you another chance. Do you really want to do that? Write an email. Somebody sends you something, says something mean to you, so you type out an email. I'm going to really give them a piece of my mind. I'm really going to tell them. And you send it, and there's an error, and the message comes back. It's like, wait a minute. Maybe God's saying, you really want to push send? Is that really what you want to say? And there are so many ways in which, with his love, he steps in and tries to prevent us from getting in trouble. And I'd suggest to you, every time we do something stupid, it's after God has told us a lot of things that could keep us. It's not like the first time Satan attacks and we just do it. I've known people who, who got caught, you know, trying to pick up a prostitute, and they always act like it's the first time they ever did it. I don't know. I, generally, from, from what I've seen with people I've dealt with, and I've been out on, on uh, you know, some of the scams that the police run to try to deal with these things, you're not usually catching somebody the first time they do it. I think sometimes God will give you a break until he finally says, if you're going to do it, fine. I'm going to take my hands off of you and I'll let you destroy yourself if that's what you insist on doing. And I really think that's what was happening with Judas here. But be careful because God's really subtle in how he tries to keep us out of trouble. There are just things that don't feel right. Or there's a relationship with someone and it's just a little off. And, and it seems like it's not clicking and it's not going right. And, and that's God just lovingly going, here, have some communion. Here, let me wash your feet. Here, let me dip this. You know, and, and there are these little warning signs, God reaching out in his love. And then ultimately, he will eventually just say, if you're going to do this, just do it. Fine. Go for it. And that's what he does ultimately to Judas. And, and just says, okay, go ahead. What you do, do it quickly. Get it over with. In verse 30, having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Just taking something from God, just received the blessing that was from him, and then turning right around and betraying the one who was about to die for him. So often, we are blessed by God. Almost in a mammoth sort of way, he provides for us in a miraculous way or we listen to his word, or we open the Bible and read it, and God speaks so clearly to us. And we take that bread of life in, and we turn right around and do something that goes directly contrary to what we know God wants us to do. And again, that's what Judas did. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, this is it, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him and himself and glorify him immediately. So he's saying, now is the time when I'm going to do what I came to do. When God's going to bring glory to himself and ultimately through the resurrection, glory to me as well, this is it. We're at the end of the road just about. And then he says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. We've just got a very short time. I love that he called them little children. It was a term of endearment that they used, not just for their children, but for someone who they had a deep affection for. You'll seek me, and as I said to the Jews, you remember when he said it a few chapters ago, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, on the basis of the fact that I'm about to go somewhere where you can't immediately follow me, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A new commandment. Love wasn't a new command, but it was commanded in the Old Testament. All the Orthodox Jews were constantly repeating the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself, was a commandment given to us in the law in Deuteronomy. So what's new? What's different? A couple of things. For one thing, it's no longer people are going to judge you by your appearance. People are going to judge you by whether or not you follow the rules. People are going to learn about you by whether or not you sacrifice, you show up on the feast days in Jerusalem when you're supposed to, you celebrate the Passover, you, you know... It's not about that anymore. Now, all of a sudden, it's something that's from the heart. It's that you're following me, as he goes on to say, keeping my commandments, but doing it out of a heart of love. It's the motivation that's changed and that's new. But not only that, Jesus was about to show what love was about in a way that no one could fathom before. Before, they were killing lambs and loving God. What's the connection? Well, there isn't much of one, except it is a sacrifice. But it was only looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice. Now Jesus showed them practically what love is by washing their feet and saying, this is something that you ought to pick up on yourself. But then he's saying, I'm about to go somewhere that you can't come. You can't go there. And I'm telling you, it's about love. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of love, The first thing I think of is not dying, being beaten and nailed to a cross and bleeding and being put in the grave, being stabbed in the side. That's not a very romantic notion. And often we use the term love as more of a romantic term than anything. That's why they couldn't understand this. But Jesus was saying, I'm going to show you real love. After you see it, you'll get it. When you comprehend that this is the way I'm suffering for you, God showed his love toward us, Romans 5, 8 says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. That's it. That's the ultimate giving of love. And and Jesus is saying, this is new. You're going to see love like you've never seen before oh, you've heard the law, you've seen the standards, and you've felt a warmth for each other, and you've even enjoyed the fellowship that we've had together. But if you think me serving you, waiting on you, washing your feet, serving bread to you, if you think that's love, just wait. Wait till you see what real love ultimately looks like. And so it's so different. It's so much deeper, so much more graphic. It's so much more practical so much more spiritual that he says it's almost like it's a new commandment, even though it isn't. It's not really new, but it's going to be like it's new to you. And so, again, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Here's the way you're supposed to be. Love one another by this. All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That concerns me. If this is the most important thing, that we love each other, that we love one another, if this is the way that the world knows that we are the disciples of Jesus, no wonder they don't get it. Because within the church, there's such division. And such hostility among the divisions. There's, there are fights going on all the time within each individual church. And then within a denomination, fights between churches in the same denomination and then fights between the denominations. And, and almost everyone, bottom line is, they really think that it's their church that's the only one that's really right. And we look at other Christians and, and we look down on them. We want to, I, I think that, Every single time probably that I ever do the Pastor's Perspective program, there are several people who are calling up and really what they want to hear is who isn't a Christian. I have this friend who's a Catholic and they say they believe in Jesus and have accepted him but at the same time they believe in this or they have a little picture of Mary or they do... So can we exclude them? Can we come to the conclusion that they're not going to heaven? Why do you want to come to a conclusion like that? Why would we even look at it that way? Why is it that we can look at other members of the body of Christ and, and get competitive with them? Why is it that there are people who will say, I'm hearing like Rick Warren and Saddleback Church being blasted because they use modern translations of the Bible in, in the purpose-driven life. Well, yeah. I've read the book a few times, and there are some passages of Scripture, frankly, where I think they've missed the point of what the original intent was of the passage, and they've used something that says what they wanted it to say and things like that. No doubt about it. But are we going to act in an unloving way because somebody's using a version of the Bible that we don't like? Is that what it's come to? And let's face it, if that's really what we're doing, what really bothers us is that he's selling 20 million of those books that his church is bursting at the seams. That's what, if we're honest, that's what bugs us the most. If he had some little dopey book that nobody read and he had 50 people in his church, you think anybody would attack him? No. We look for people that we have something to gain if we put them down. And somehow we believe that if we can put other people down, by default, we rise up. And, and that is unchristian. It's disgusting. And Jesus says... The most important thing is that you don't do this. That you love each other so that people will go, wow, that's really cool. They do things a lot different than that other church, but man, they love each other. They, sometimes people have questions about the Pentecostal movement. As certainly, there's a lot of things that frankly to us look pretty goofy And when people are laughing and barking in the spirit and running up and down the aisles and rolling, swinging from chandeliers, and we look at it and go, oh, man, that's off. So then we begin to speculate. I wonder if they're really possessed when they're doing that. Or is it just their emotions? We try to cut them some slack. But the truth is, we don't want to face, maybe that's the way God's dealing with certain people. Now, like you, I look and go, I don't know, I can't imagine But here's the thing. Do we love those people? Now, personally, people who love to jump up and run around during church and yell stuff out during the message, I'm so glad that there are churches for people like that. Don't want them doing it here. But at the same time, do we go, look, God's actually working. And that's a good thing. And not only that, whether they are right or wrong, the truth is they're wrong a lot. But so are we. We all are. So how do we talk about them? I think sometimes when we talk to non-Christians, we want to distance ourselves from all other Christians. We want to make it really clear. We're not like those redneck Jerry Falwell types, and we're not like those crazy Pentecostal types, and we're not like those formal Presbyterians, and we're not like those, you know... um, Catholics who are, oh, you know what they've been doing? And and we like we feel like somehow we are going to elevate ourselves and Jesus if we can let people know that we're not like the other Christians. Think about it. You've just celebrated Christmas. Many of you spent time with your relatives. How proud are you of the way some of your relatives are? I mean, these are people for the most part you wouldn't hang out with if they weren't related to you. And yet It's your family. So you love them. You don't want other people attacking them. You'll attack them, but you don't want other people doing it because it's family. And what God wants us to understand and what Jesus was trying to drive home to the disciples here is, look, with whatever differences you have and with whatever's going to happen right now, You let people know if somebody loves Jesus Christ, if somebody has put their faith in him, if someone is calling themselves a Christian, then embrace them, love them, lovingly correct them if you think you need to, but don't get out there and rip them. Don't allow the world to think that we hate each other, that we don't get along. How many times when you're witnessing do you get that question, you know, if Christianity is for real, and you're saying, you know, that, that the Bible is real and Jesus is real. Well, which version of it do I believe in? If it's real, why are there so many different denominations? Why are there so many different ways of looking at it? And there's a good and a bad way of dealing with that. Uh, the, the, uh, the wrong way is to just give people the impression, yeah, they're all off, but see, we're right. But another way of doing it is going... Why are there so many different kinds of people in the world? Why are there so many uh, different uh, races? And why are there so many different hobbies? And why are there so many different colors in the rainbow? And why are there so many different shades of blue in a beautiful ocean? Or even shades of green and brown in an ocean? It's because God's bigger than we are. And so we like it. We're glad that there's a diversity within the body of Christ, but we love each other and we stick together. Now you go, "Yeah, it's fine for us to say, but they're not going to stick with us. They're going to rip us." If they do, fine. But let's make sure that we don't do it. Let's make sure that it's not that we're not the ones who are creating division within the body of Christ and being less than loving to others. We all have enough problems in our own lives that We can't be spending all of our time and energy correcting other people's mistakes. They really don't want to hear from us anyway. Except if we're loving enough, it's going to touch people. It's going to make a difference in their lives. I remember when I first went to Calvary Chapel. I grew up in church. I knew what church was like. I knew what it was like to have a church that was governed by the congregation. And boy, board, member, board meetings were so much fun. Congregational meetings, we'd argue about everything. I remember, you know, as a little kid, a couple times I got to jump in on an argument in a church congregational meeting. It was fun. I came to Calvary, and it seemed really weird. But the thing I couldn't get away from is these people were really loving. And I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with hippies coming up and hugging you and things like it was it felt strange it wasn't you know it wasn't what I was used to but ultimately it was it touches your heart when you realize that people just really care about you and I'll tell you something if people are going to come into any church ours or any other church the thing that's going to strike them the most is when people who are really different really love each other That when you have, not a homogeneous group where we all look the same, act the same, dress the same, but when they can come in and go, man, there's people older than me, there's people younger than me, there's people of different races and economic backgrounds, and they all seem to love each other. They just, man, they're together. What can do that? Only the miracle of the unity of the body of Christ. That's all that can do it. And if we don't love each other and we don't love others in the body of Christ from other traditions and churches then people can't figure it out because see, it's not about Calvary Chapel or it's not about the Baptists or the Methodists or the Presbyterians or whatever it's about Jesus and we need to play down who we are and play up and and glorify God for what He's doing in other places with other people And when people see that, they don't don't get it. They don't understand. But then when they begin to, it catches their interest, all of a sudden they start to discover, these guys are disciples of Jesus. This is the way Jesus would have been. Took in different people, included them. Let Judas hang out with them for over three years. Ultimately continued to try to minister to even Judas. Put up with Peter. In his mouth, Thomas with his doubting. It was, you know, that's Jesus. So are we that way? Or do we dare, as his disciples, have stricter standards for fellowship than he had? Do we dare decide that we're going to separate ourselves from another segment of the body of Christ? Or even from people within our church that we've had a spat with or something. We're going to be that exclusive? They'd be glad that Jesus wasn't because he wouldn't have let any of us in. None of us are anything like him. And you have to look really hard to start to see family resemblance starting to develop in most of us. But he said, Here's how people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. And that's the most important thing to him. Simon Peter skipped over the whole love thing, and he goes, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> We heard you say something a little while ago, 15 minutes ago, about I'm going somewhere you can't come. And yeah, yeah, love, 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 love. And, but where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't follow me now. But you shall follow me afterward. Peter started to figure out that he was talking about his death. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. Jesus is saying, right now, it's the same way when James and John's mom came and said, can my boys sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom? And he said, you don't know what you're asking. They can't do what I'm going to do. But sadly, they will follow. Later on in the Gospel of John, we'll see as Jesus talked to Peter after his resurrection, that, you know, you're going to follow me. You'll be stretched out the way I am. And sure enough, Peter ended up being crucified. But at this point, Jesus was saying, this isn't the time. It's going to be later on down the road when this happens to you. And so um, that's what he says. You can't follow me now. And he's going, why? I'll lay down my life for your sake. Again, talk is cheap. Peter, at this point, I believe, would have laid down his life for Jesus. Later on in the garden, Hours later, as a whole group of soldiers came to take Jesus, Peter pulled out a sword and started hacking away and cut the ear off a guy. Peter wasn't very good at a sword. He was trying to take his head off, and he just got an ear. But he was ready. I mean, they could have killed him right at that point. If Jesus hadn't put the ear back on, they probably would have. And so Peter's this brave guy, and yet... It's sometimes amazing how when we're sitting and thinking about it, we believe the best about ourselves. And even, yeah, if it was right this second, Jesus, I'd take a bullet for you. But we don't know what it's going to feel like when we feel so neglected by him, when we feel so, he's going to go die. It's all over with. I don't understand this and he doesn't want to fight, he's the Messiah, he's supposed to establish his kingdom, we're all going to be a part of it, this is going to be great and here he is, he could walk away, he could wipe these people out, and he's just letting them take him and he's going to let them kill him, I don't get it and then at that point when things didn't meet Peter's expectations he got really frustrated, he got really depressed it was tough. Just like we do when God doesn't do things quite our way. Man, we'll, we'll do anything if he does it our way. But when his methods vary from ours, we freak out. We go, I don't understand it. I don't get it. So Peter wasn't lying. At this point, he felt like, hey, I'll die with you. But just a short few hours later, Peter's going to deny Jesus. To a little girl even he's going to be so different and, and so with us when we make these kinds of proclamations in our own strength when we say that's it I'm never going to do that again I've changed this isn't going to happen I'll never get caught up in that temptation again I would never become like that person be careful because You don't understand why that person is the way they are, why they do what they do. And we can't afford to, in pride or arrogance, ever say, Jesus, don't worry about it, man. I'll take care of it. I don't even need your help on this one. Believe me, I'll stop it from happening. It's not going to happen, Jesus. We can't afford to do that because we don't know what we will do in a given situation. And we especially don't understand what we will do if his hand is taken away from us because we're going our own way, doing our own thing. And he says, okay, you want to do it by yourself? Let's see how you do. Let's see what you do. And so Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus predicting at this point that Peter's going to deny him, even telling him when. Now, you have to read all the Gospels and put them together to get exactly what happened. Um, When it says that you'll deny me before the cock crows, it could be translated before the cock finishes crowing, when the crowing's over, and that explains a lot. Basically, what happened by putting, especially in Mark's Gospel, putting it into the mix, you realize... Peter denied Jesus with one person, with the girl, and then the cock crowed the first time. He denied him to some other people, and then the third time when he denied him out, out by the outside of the fire, then the cock crowed the second time. And so we know that Jesus said, before the cock's through crowing, you're going to deny me three times. But he also said, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times, um, it's, an, it's really an ominous prediction, but it also shows us how much Jesus knew and that he knew Peter better than Peter knew Peter. And he also knows you better than you know yourself. We also find by reading in the other Gospels that when the cock crud the second time after Peter had denied Jesus three times, it says Jesus looked at him and it just broke Peter's heart. From across the way, they were taking him. They had already been beating him and scourging him. He saw Peter over there. And I don't believe he looked at him like, nice job, Peter. But I believe it was that compassionate look from Jesus' heart that was saying, I still love you. It's okay. I wasn't depending on you at all. Oh, we let Jesus down all the time, we think. Truth is, we don't let him down. He doesn't need us. He wants to participate with us. He wants to allow us to fellowship with him. But we don't, you know, let him down. He knows. Over in Luke, when he was talking to Peter, he told him, this is going to happen, but I'm praying for you. And when you've been restored, when you've been strengthened, you need to reach out to your brothers who have similar problems. It's, a, it's just a great interchange between them. And in the Gospel of John, we'll see again Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep, do my work. Kind of restoring him to ministry, going, you know, I know everybody else would say, sorry, you've disqualified yourself, but I want you in a really simple way to know that I've forgiven you. I understand as bad as what you did was, and I'm still going to use you. I still want you just to, in a simple way, take care of my sheep. Love them. Do what I taught you to do when I washed your feet. It's not about you, Peter. It's not about how good you are and whether you deserve it. You thought, oh, you're the kind of guy that could never fall. But now, you're going to fall. I'll still love you. I'll still let you know I want to use you. I don't disqualify you. And so... Jesus again, at this time, Peter's still thinking, no way. But when he heard that cock crow the second time, and then Jesus looking at him, he realized, I guess I'm not who I thought I was. There are a lot of us, and I think this probably happens to most of us at one time or another. We have to fail in order to understand that we can't do this on our own. God will allow us to really blow it to take whatever it is inside of us that we thought we could depend on and to be emptied of that. And then as we're laying there on the mat, it's all over. We've been wiped out. Then he goes, okay, the good stuff is just starting. There are a lot of people who fight like crazy to avoid the pain that comes from making mistakes. And really, it might just be your big mistake that opens the door to allow you to realize it's not about you. It's not who you are and what you can do. We're scared to death. And sometimes when we fail, we cover it up, we hide it, we pretend like it didn't happen. And instead, the message is really clear. It's Jesus looking at us compassionately and going, okay, we got that out of the way. Now, can we move? Can we move forward? Can you get busy with doing what I called you to do? We well, just love my people. And, and there are so many people who, when they fail, they think it's all over. It's really just a start. It's really just an opportunity to discover that the pressure is off of you completely. Oh, I can wear myself out thinking that God needs me. Or I can just realize what he says that he doesn't, that the pressure's not on me, It's not all the crowd looking at me, I'm standing there at the free throw line, tie game, one more free throw to go, win the game, lose. No, it's not that at all. The pressure is like a kid with their parents out shooting baskets. It doesn't matter. You win or you lose, he's going to win. He's in charge. It's about him. And when Jesus went to the cross, he went alone. He didn't need anybody's help. He had to do it. But by doing that, he taught us what we can do when he is inside us, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, when he is empowering and equipping us. And that's what they needed to learn. Now, at this point, they didn't get it. But that's kind of cool too because we realize that we don't have to just understand what God says right when he says it. It kind of soaks in there, and when the time comes later, it's going to make a lot more sense. I, al- I always tell people when I do premarital counseling, we'll go through the motions of this stuff, but I know you're going like, to be like everyone else, and you don't really think you need this, and so I'm not going to waste a whole bunch of time. We're not going to do some 12-week thing on it. I said, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. When things start falling apart, give me a call, and then we'll talk about it, because marriage counseling is so much more effective than premarital counseling. Now I still do premarital counseling, but everyone thinks it doesn't apply to them. Hey, reality hits when you get married. In a very short time, all of a sudden, there it is. And then you're like, where's that premarital book? And flipping through it, and wow, there was some good stuff in here. So I think doing premarital counseling is okay. It plants some seeds. Just like Jesus teaching them at this time well, it was good that they learned it because later on it made a bunch of sense to them. Later on they were able to go, oh, that's what he was talking about. And that's why we need to continue to read the word, why we continue to study, why we need to continue to come to Bible studies. and th- Even if we feel like, oh, I don't know, there wasn't really anything. I'm not going to deny Jesus. I'm not going to betray him. So tonight was kind of a wash. Now nah, there's things there. Maybe not right now, but maybe next week. Maybe you feel like you've you've always been loving, but all of a sudden, in a couple of weeks and a month you're going to find yourself in a position where you go, "What am I doing? I'm being so unloving to somebody some other Christian, and God wants me to reach out to them and show who He is by the way that we love each other. So there are lessons in His word, and I just believe like the disciples. Let's just keep dumping it in and even though some of it tonight may not be your night and you're going, I don't know, this is kind of boring. Bring on communion. Yeah, really, God may be planting seeds right now in your life for something that's just about to happen. So pay attention to what he says. Take it seriously. Realize these are important lessons because you may be very close to a situation where you feel defeated, where you feel like you've blown it, where life has fallen apart. And Jesus is going to want you to know, I'm still with you. It doesn't depend on you. I still love you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to be together. Thank you for giving us such a huge body of Christ across the world that we can love and and show that we're your disciples by the way that we love each other. But Lord, help us. Please, mold us and shape us into what you want us to be. We don't want to, in an arrogant way, think that we're above the kinds of things that you were warning your disciples about. Help us to serve you, and by serving you, serve each other simply, honestly, openly, walking in your love, enjoying your fellowship, being at one with you, and at one with each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.